from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Welcome to the Discover Policing Podcast. I'm Joseph Marcus. The, the goal is to ensure that uh, our students, that they can uh, engage, that they can uh, speak out with the underlying sort of focus of ensuring uh, safety and security for everyone involved. We are now going to behave in a way to, if you will, protest that behavior on the part of police. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS office. And the department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of the podcast and in the episode show notes. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS office. On this episode of the podcast, I discuss demonstrations and party riots on college campuses with Chief Vincent of University of Washington and Dr. Harold at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I think it's a really good conversation with both of them. In the conversation, we talk about many of the issues around speech on campuses. While our discussion focuses on college and university campuses, a lot of the issues that we discuss can also be applied to cities and states dealing with similar issues in in their jurisdictions. This episode is a little bit longer than our normal episodes, but I got a lot out of it and I hope you do as well. And now my interview with Chief Vincent from the University of Washington. Chief Vincent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Chief Vincent, can you start with a little bit of your background in the field and uh, your experiences? Yes, uh, I've been in uh, policing for over 25 years. Out of my uh, almost 25 years, uh, 18 have been uh, in higher ed. I have been uh, currently at the University of Washington. I've been here for just over 10 years. And I've been uh, really trying to look at innovative and proactive ways within our higher ed communities. I think university and college settings are an interesting time in, in young people's lives. And I think, you know, especially on campuses like Washington, students aren't only there to learn in the strictest of academic senses about, you know, math and sciences, but I think it's also a time where um, young people are starting to develop their own sense of politics, what it means to organize. How do you see um, those roles sort of playing into each other with some of the issues around college demonstrations on university campuses? You know, for us, I think the, the goal is to ensure that uh, our students can do all of those things, that they can uh, engage, that they can uh, speak out, they can have an opinion um, with the underlying sort of focus of ensuring uh, safety and security for everyone involved. So when I think about the, the role of, of the, the police department or our public safety services, our number one goal is to encourage our students uh, to take advantage of uh, their First Amendment rights, to encourage them to uh, take a position on a particular issue. But at the same time, our number one goal is to provide guidance and counsel on how they can do that in a very thoughtful strategic and more importantly a safe manner so when we engage with our students at the onset of those sort of demonstrations protests or just uh, public conversations uh, we, we want to make sure they really understand what are the parameters around those conversations and how do we make sure that one uh, they can be safe uh, when they can uh, when, when they decide to sort of have those conversations but also create an environment where perhaps there might be opposing viewpoints uh, that uh, may, may show up as well. So how do we you know, have some conversations in advance to ensure that all parties involved can be very sort of thoughtful about what they want to say, how they would like to say it, but more importantly, from a policing standpoint, we can balance those differences of opinion in a way that uh, all members, all students can be safe. Can we talk a little a little bit more about some of that pre-planning work? Um, how do you work with students, administrators, uh, local police, and, and the pr- protest organizers uh, if they are students or if they're if they're non uh, students um, 
to ensure the safety of everyone and to make sure that everyone's rights are protected in those spaces. Uh, once we know that there will be an event, uh, particularly around those planned events, um, we would first off uh, reach out to the student organizers and meet with them and really talk about you know what type of event they want to have and the date, time, and what type of attendance they anticipate. So we sort of use mm -hmm. that as a first sort of step in the in the process. And dependent upon what information comes out of that conversation and or what group that perhaps they are co-sponsoring, that will dictate uh, the sort of the next steps in, in our process. But one of the things that we do do for every event is we do sort of a review of uh, previous events that perhaps the group has sponsored. Uh, have there been, were there any previous concerns that occurred to, during that event? Um, was the group uh, that's coming to our campus at a different uh, campus or different community? Mm. Um, how did that exchange go? How did the event unfold? Were there any public safety concerns? And that will sort right. of drive our overall conversation in terms of strategy. So that's sort of step one. And then step two is uh, once we have sort of a baseline of information, uh, we put together uh, what we call the special events uh, planning team at the university that consists of, you know, members from various units on the campus that uh, would be sort of responsible for managing any 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 event, but in this case, uh, since we're talking about protests, uh, protests. And again, this strategy is something we use for all large events um, on our campus. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like social media drives a lot of um, the narrative as well around this and can also bring in a much larger audience than may have been originally anticipated. Protests have turned into... Uh, almost riots and cause property destruction. So how do you think um, or how do you deal with some of the social media uh, issues around um, these events? We monitor social media on a regular basis. What's the rhetoric around the social media post? It'll say, you know, show up and protest and it'll say, you know, 200 people are going and 400 people are going. And, and then what's some of the narrative around that? And based on our experience, you know, when it says X amount of folks or people are showing up, it's usually a, a, a poor a percentage of that. Um, but either way, we adjust right. our strategies based upon uh, worst case scenario, uh, recognizing in, in our past mm -hmm. experiences you know, quite often we, we might have a few more um, uh, resources there than what ultimately is needed uh, in the final analysis. Uh, but, you know, our university in, in, in conjunction with the city police department, we've taken on a, a role of really trying to be proactive and, and making sure we have the appropriate resources there if necessary. Does your campus... Um... You know, and I'm talking about the campus largely, not necessarily the the police department. But um, does your campus have any sort of policies or um, guidance on deplatforming, where a, a a controversial, you know, sometimes xenophobic or racist speaker is coming, um, and people want to deplatform or deny him or her the opportunity to speak? Does your, you know, what is sort of the campus culture around some of those things, or campus policies around some of those issues? Uh, to be honest, at, at this point, uh, we, we haven't uh, finalized a policy specifically around uh, that issue as of yet. Uh, we're, we're currently working on it, uh, but uh, our practice has been in the past and up until now, um, we will um, allow for uh, speakers that do have uh, uh, differing opinions and different viewpoints and our number one priority is to try to do as much uh, pre-planning as possible to ensure that uh, uh, both the speaker, uh, who, who may have a, a very controversial message, can have a space where he or she is safe and uh, can speak to his or her own uh, sort of uh, uh, members that want to listen to the message, and then another space uh, where perhaps there might be uh, some individuals who have opposing viewpoints uh, can, can speak and, and, and speak their piece. 
and try to find a way where we can keep those opposing viewpoints and perspectives separate. Mm. University of Washington is a public school, is that correct? That's correct. Do you see a difference between these issues on private universities or public universities, or do you think there's, they're very similar issues uh, on both? I, I think uh, from, from what I've seen and what I've uh, talked to from uh, many police administrators from public universities, uh, our issues are the same. Um, uh, from what I'm understanding on the private uh, university campuses, uh, they have uh, a lot more discretion around uh, policies and procedures that can guide uh, time, place, and manner and type of speech a little bit more than what we can um, do at the public institution. So I, I think that's one of the, the differences that uh, does exist, uh, at least from what I understand, between public and private institutions. What kind of... Um... I don't want to get into specifics yet about how you manage the crowds, but you know, generally, what are some of the practices um, and trainings that uh, you've started to implement within uh, your department, or what are some of the the um, changes in general police uh, procedures uh, that you've seen across the country? You know, one one of the things that we we've done uh, in in our Department again, we work very closely with uh, our Seattle Police Department uh, colleagues and partners. So, mm -hmm. one thing that we do on a regular basis is do crowd to control training with them uh, on mm -hmm. a regular basis to make sure that you know we are adhering to best practices in terms of uh, crowd uh, control, crowd management, and and also to ensure that we are on the same page from a unified. Uh, command perspective. We know exactly the various roles that our officers will play, who would, who will do what and when, and more importantly, how we will work together to manage uh, that uh, issue that uh, might arise. So that's uh, one of the things that uh, we do, and I know it's uh, recommended across the country, that ongoing training, that ongoing discussion is absolutely critical to ensure that uh, all the officers uh, in the event are operating under the same sort of practices and, and protocol. You know, how do you start to manage crowds or identify things that might be going out of hand and start to address some of those things? What are some of the best practices that you've seen and started to implement uh, on campus? Uh, again, one of the things uh, that we do here is really try to work with the groups in advance. And if, for example, we need the student leaders to do one thing, we've already talked to them in advance, they know exactly what they need to do. If they're, try yeah, they're trying to, right. for example, you know, manage uh, who's coming into the event, we've already talked about, okay, let's do wristbands. Uh, the student will pick up mm -hmm. the wristbands at this building across campus. And then when they come across campus, they're going to come this way and come to the other door mm -hmm. over here. And then we'll manage that. So we have a... So you really like laid out each, basically each step of the way is, is pretty well identified. Absolutely. Yeah, we spend a lot of time laying out exactly how the steps, yeah, the steps along from the start to the end of that event and who's going to do what. That is correct. And have you, have you gotten a lot of positive feedback from the students or do they, you know, see that as just, you know, uh, you know, uh, these, like all this bureaucratic work I got to go through. What is, what is, how have some of those students reacted to some of those things? The last three or four events uh, that we needed to do this type of planning, the students were very, very helpful. In fact, we even walk with them through the various locations on campus and help them pick the room that gave them the, the biggest sort of venue for their event, but also from a safety standpoint. So we walked through various rooms mm -hmm. and said, oh, that doesn't work for us from a safety standpoint, from an emergency response standpoint. And then we walk to the other building. Oh, this works perfectly. And then we walk through the entire safety plan with them to include, you know, wristbands and entry, exit, emergency evacuation, police response, medical response. So I believe that uh, this proactive mm -hmm. engagement with our student leaders have really minimized um, challenges, particularly around, you know, controversial speakers on our campus. It seems like both the students and 
um, the police and administration can can understand both perspectives and see how you're trying to support one another um, and help. And the students can also then see the the issues that you're thinking through as well. Um, and I think that collaborative approach is really That's interesting. That's correct. You know, when there is a um, an assembly or um, demonstration, what are some of the cues that you look for to either stepping up some of the um, uh, going to the next step of escalation and just in terms of um, suiting up or, um, you know, increasing uh, patrol? What, what are some of the behavior cues you look for from the crowd? Uh, one, one of the cues, again, is, you know, how many people are, uh, is the, is the dialogue is the exchange of information causing other sort of individuals to uh, get more excited in their behavior, right? So, for example, if we have a, a crowd of, you know, 20, 20, 20 people that's just there and we have a sort of a, a one opinion being voiced against the other and they're just sort of, uh, you know, face to face, you know, we might come from behind the, the the barricades and just walk up and have a presence, right? So we mm-hmm. would just stand there. They would see us, and uh, they would they would go. If there's thirty or forty people or fifty people, and that starts to generate more, you know, uh, finger pointing, then we would walk up and just sort of slowly, you know, a step between them and and, and tell them to sort of uh, calm down, right? So that's sort of a the level of sort of discretion our, our team has. Now that's on a sort of a smaller scale sort of event. The larger scale events, we've already have a spot completely sectioned off where one group of uh, uh, students are uh, sort of inside a particular area where they're able to sort of engage in, in their conversation and the opposing uh, or, or counter uh perspectives are uh, completely separate. And then we have sort of barricades or cattle gates, you know, separating those two. And the same strategy occurs, you know, if the if the if the environment is getting a little bit more contentious and uh, the rhetoric is causing m- more anxiety, then you know we would have our officers there, and then we may you know step up and bring you know more officers. We may step up and say, hey, why don't we move and put on our our helmets? So every situation is different, but uh, the crowd and the reaction uh, dictates you know our response from a public safety or policing perspective. Um, I, I think that's, I mean, really all the questions I have, I, I really appreciate all your, your time. Is there anything else that, that you think that, that you want to cover that you think we, we missed? I just think this topic is ever evolving, uh, as we continue to move forward, uh, in this year, I, I believe, uh, campuses, uh, colleges and universities are being a lot uh, more proactive in terms of engaging and planning for these events in a much more thoughtful and proactive way. And, and more importantly, it's really, I believe, uh, requiring uh, all many of the universities, if, if, if there isn't a policy in place, to really think about uh, developing and or implementing a policy. Well, actually, so I guess I do, I do have one more question that I didn't get to yet. Um, what was your policy-making process without getting into the details of what policies you ended up coming up with. But how did you as a law enforcement executive, as well as the uh, vice president um, on campus, how did you develop some of those policies um, for your police department in dealing with these issues? Yeah. And again, uh, you know, my, I just, you know, I, I have a vice president of student life that I report to and my, my other title is assistant vice president of student life. But, you know, okay. I, I think a lot of it was just really, um, using an event, um, that occurred on our campus. And I believe 20, uh, I think 2017, um, that, uh, didn't go, uh, well, we, we planned for it, but there was a couple, components that we didn't necessarily anticipate Mm -hmm. during the course of the night. It was really uh, reactive in response to a shooting that occurred uh, uh, during a large process. Um, But it really allowed uh, us or rather required us to really think about um, 
getting the broader stakeholders at the UW involved in the planning process so that we could sort of manage uh, these events much more holistically uh, versus uh, just the police department uh, taking the lead. That sort of led to uh, the need to now uh, really come up with a policy that could be a lot more proactive uh, so that everyone understands what are the parameters, circumstances around, for example, you know, time, place, and manner of an mm-hmm. event. And are there uh, certain facilities on campus that we can use to accommodate these types of events? Because right now, a lot of it is sort of uh, to be frank, uh, sort of left uh, to the police department and student organizers sort of walking around and looking at mm. uh, some of these spaces. But if the university has a policy that we can develop that sort of applies to everyone across the board, then I believe that allows for better communication and more importantly, advance expectations around what's required for any student group and or any group that wants to host something on the campus, everyone has it in advance and we can all be sort of working from the same guideline. You know, when we think, when we plan for our event, we probably have uh, 25, uh, 25 to 30 um, people either on the phone or in the room really working through uh, these events. And and one thing I am I'm proud of at, at our university is, you know, we use these events, uh, this planning team for large and small events. Uh, the, the, the time that it takes to plan may be condensed, but we make sure that this protocol is followed for every event so that, uh, it becomes part of the UW culture in terms of special event planning. And we're not just bringing this team together for controversial speakers. We have a protocol and now a culture that even if it's not a controversial speaker, we're getting these key stakeholders around the table. So we're still at least on the same page. So that, I think, is absolutely critical and has been a success for us. I'll leave it there. And so, uh, Chief Vincent, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. It was a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Thank you very much. My next guest is Dr. Harold from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. My interview with Dr. Harold focuses more on crowd dynamics, crowd control mechanisms, and, and new models that law enforcement agencies can use to think about responding to riots and demonstrations. And now my interview with Dr. Harold. Dr. Harold, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, Can you start with a little bit about your background um, and your work in the space of crowd control and crowd dynamics? Absolutely. So, So I have a PhD in criminal justice. And so my research, my training is actually in the area of crime science. In the U.S., it's sometimes referred to as environmental criminology. In terms of how I ended up studying crowds and crowd dynamics, that was absolutely by accident. Um, Hmm. My mentor, uh, Dr. John Eck, uh, was asked by the Department of Justice as part of their COPS office to write a problem-oriented policing guide for them. And it was on student party riots. And he pawned it off onto one of his graduate students. It just happened to be me. Um, and uh, it was perfect because studying crowds, crowd dynamics, how crowds are reacting to their environments, really aligned nicely with the crime science perspective. And so I ended up producing that guide with John um, for the cops office. And then it was highly successful. They were very happy with it. So when they were looking for someone to write a guide on spectator violence in stadiums, they reached out to us again, and we produced that guide as well. In some of my research on on your work, um, that guide has been really productive, and I think we'll definitely go back and talk about that a little bit later. And a lot of the recommendations you have in there are still really applicable, even though it was a number of years ago, but we'll definitely... uh, come back to that. Um, One of the things that you had talked about was um, spaces and how spaces affect human behavior. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how you see the differences between a college campus um, and a public space? Or how might those different spaces affect human behavior when it comes to demonstrations or assemblies? Sure. You know, I believe there's probably more similarities than differences. It just happens to be 
compacted into a relatively small area. So obviously, uh, most college campuses are open to the public. So there's a lot of public space on a college campus. And the same can be said for um, other parts of a city. If you're looking at protests and demonstrations, they often occur in public spaces. So in that sense, a college campus is not much different. Um, also on a college campus, you're going to t find the types of facilities that you might um, that, that tend to attract crowds like stadiums and arenas. Those are often found on college campuses. And then you also have um, private spaces like individual faculty offices um, that are not necessarily open to the public, but could become involved in a demonstration or a protest. And so diving into a little bit about um, the stadiums and quads, and you know, oftentimes there are clusters of bars um, how do those, you know, those seem to be magnets for, um, gatherings and how do, how do sort of those spaces affect, uh, behavior just generally speaking? The answer to that question probably depends on what that cluster looks mm. like. So for example, if it's a, a place that in which you have a concentration of bars, well, that, that would be very similar to, let's say a downtown space, right? Where right. you have a an entertainment district. And so certainly those facilities attract a particular type of demographic um, and looking to engage in particular types of behavior. Um, so I, your point, I think, is that context matters. And certainly the way in which those contexts are uh, laid out, whether it's in a on a college campus or or in a in a city or a larger environment, really does matter because it's going to determine um, who's in that space and what their intentions are, how they intend to use that space. We we have to sort of start to narrow down our conversation a little bit. So I wanted to start to talk a little bit about some of the student riot issues. Um, so can you talk about some of the the facilitators of riots? I think for the student party riots. It's a really interesting phenomenon. I guess the specific makeup of those riots and outcomes of those riots really depends on, again, the context and, and the purpose, at least the initial purpose. So mm -hmm. when I first started my research in this area, it was fascinating. Um, as a college student, I had not participated uh, in a student party riot. So this was but new as to a grad me. school now you get to? <laughs> No, 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 no. And I still have not. I still have not participated in a student party riot, but I have observed them. And, it, you know, it's a, it is fascinating. You talk about facilitators in Cincinnati, where I was a doctoral student. For some reason, on Cinco de Mayo, the students at the University of Cincinnati would erupt into these violent riots in the streets just out, outside of the just outside of the university where a lot of student housing was concentrated hmm. so i you know i don't know if if this was the product of beer companies saying that this this is the greatest holiday of all time and uh you know we must celebrate but every cinco de mayo there would be a student party riot just off campus. So obviously, with the jurisdictional issues, now you have campus police involved, as well as um, local city police. And so, you know, th this would, this would just erupt into this, this uh, violent event where you had students setting things on fire, flipping over police vehicles. Um, and it was, it was really interesting. It was all just surrounding this particular holiday, not necessarily an event on campus. Mm. They weren't protesting anything. Right. Um, this was more of, of what we refer to as a celebratory riot. But, so one of the things you kind of mentioned is this was a regular occurrence. And I'm thinking, you know, there there's quote unquote party schools, right? Santa, you know, I'm also from Southern California. San Diego was a party school. Santa Barbara on uh, Halloween is always uh, crazy speaking about demonstrations, right? You have other campuses that tend to be more politically uh, active and demonstrations are a regular uh, occurrence on there and it almost becomes a, you know, a tradition or something like that. What is the role of those sort of dynamics on, on campuses and how should law enforcement and communities be thinking about those, um, I'm putting in air quotes that you can't see, traditions? Right. Um, great question. And I think it's a double-edged sword. So if, if we know that it's going to happen, this really puts us at an advantage, right? Because 
planning is key. On the other hand, um, if it has become a tradition or it's part of the reputation of a university, it makes it very difficult to prevent. And I know one of the risk factors that we had identified as part of our early research in this area was exactly that, a place reputation um, or an event reputation. If there had been violence in the past, you're more likely to see that violence in the future. So, you, you know, knowing that it's coming helps us to plan and prepare and hopefully prevent. But knowing that it's coming also means it's more likely to happen. I don't mean to log roll here, but my wife and father-in-law both have done a lot of work around alcohol uh, and actually on college campuses. Um, and so a lot of that work that you had done on that uh, COPS report um, really sort of resonated with me. You know, you talk a little bit in there about restricting alcohol or parking, ways to change some of the environmental um, issues around there to reduce destruction. Can you talk about some of those preventative uh, mechanisms that communities and campuses and campus law enforcement can um, work together to, you know, start to implement? With respect to celebratory riots, if this is something that we can anticipate, whether it's an annual holiday like Cinco de Mayo, or if it's following the outcome of a sporting event, if we know when these events might occur, and we know relatively, at least we have a general sense of where those events might occur. There's there's many things that we can do to, if nothing else, reduce harm associated with the event. So, for example, um, environmental scrubbing becomes really important. So, prior to that specific date where the riot was anticipated, you know, the police and others would go through and make sure that there weren't um, discarded couches lying on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm you know, waiting for pickup, um, because those could likely become targets for fire setting, mm -hmm. right? Or other types of, let's say, trash cans or other items that might be in the streets that could become projectiles. You know, in terms of prevention um, and trying to disrupt the tradition, you know, universities, college campuses have, have done a lot in terms of trying to both facilitate good behavior and then discourage bad behavior. So if we start with facilitating good behavior, you know, they might host an, a, an alternative event on campus that's really attractive to the students, maybe host a, a concert or some sort of party in a controlled environment where that type of behavior is much less likely to occur. And on the flip side, in terms of discouraging that behavior, broadcasting some of the consequences associated with engaging in that behavior, um, whether it be um, through legal channels or also in terms of their status as students at the university. Uh, I know colleges have, have used that in the past to help discourage that type of behavior mm -hmm. on the part of students. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the interesting things, and you've probably seen this if you've worked with um, student populations, is that some students, especially if they're under the influence of alcohol or they're just looking for a really good time, they like to end up on, on television, right? Mm -hmm. um, so wherever yeah. the camera goes tends to, tends to attract students. It acts like a magnet, right? <laughs> and so if you have yeah. a partnership with media in advance and you don't concentrate them all in the same place or you use them to sort of pull the crowd in one direction or another, that can be a really useful tool um, for police in order to avoid things like mm. trampling or swarming or really um, densely compacted crowds where you're likely to have some sort of negative outcome. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think, I mean, that's a nice segue to where I wanted to take this conversation. Let's talk about some of the basic theories or models of crowd behavior. I, you know, I've I, I don't actually have no idea where to start this conversation. So, you know, where, you know, where should, where, sh how should people be thinking about those issues? From an environmental criminology perspective, when we think about how we might want to manipulate behavior, obviously we focus on both the built environment and how that environment is managed. And there is a really useful tool. It, it offers 25 techniques for influencing mm -hmm. human behavior. And those 25 techniques 
are organized in five different categories. And so I'm sure you're familiar with rational choice theory mm-hmm. or the, you know, the old classical school models that, that suggest people will weigh the costs and benefits <laughs> of any, you know. Yes, especially under action. alcohol, everyone weighs costs <laughs> and benefits. Yes. And so obviously um, one of the techniques is to control those types of facilitators, right? So to, to, to focus on controlling when we can things that will um, maybe decrease people's sensitivity to environmental cues. And obviously one of those is alcohol, but we really focus on these five dimensions um, of the environment that influence human behavior. And those are effort, risk, reward, provocations, and excuses. And so just very briefly, what we try to do is we, we look at the situation, we say, how do we make it more difficult to engage in bad behavior? That's the effort dimension. Then we'll say, how do we make this, how do we make doing bad things appear more risky, Hmm. right? Like it might not be worth my time. Um, We might look at it and say, how do we reduce the rewards associated with engaging in some of these, you know, um, questionable behaviors? So, for example, and that might even include media, like being on camera, right? Something like that. Absolutely. Or we might we might remove environmental instigators. And a great example of this, and this isn't necessarily related to college demonstrations, but you know, my hometown is Las Vegas. Um, that's where I'm a professor of criminal justice at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And one of our our biggest events of the year is New Year's Eve. Hmm. But some of our casinos um, have decorations uh, or, um, you know, um, statues, other things out in front of these properties that might invite bad behavior. And so just if you can think about this, if you're familiar at all with Caesar's Palace on the Strip, mm-hmm. um, there there might be a naked statue of David, let's just say. <laughs> well, if you, if you have a bunch of intoxicated people who are looking for a great time, suddenly that, that statue becomes a very attractive target, right? And so one of the things that you do to reduce rewards is to reduce the the presence of those types of environmental instigators, right? That, w- that would be an example. We also want to reduce provocation. So, um, you know, a very clear, easy example to provide is the density of a crowd can often provoke bad behavior simply because you're bumping into people, right? That close proximity to one another, the physical proximity can mm-hmm. often incite bad behavior. So we can, can reduce provocations. Sure. Can I stop you on that real quick? Because sure. to me, that sounds like the theory of crowd, you know, maddening, you know, people get in crowds and they do things that they wouldn't normally do. Um, is that, is that sort of what you're, you mean, or, you know, what is, what is the maddening theory of crowds? I'm so glad, I'm so glad that you asked me that question. So uh, this was a very popular uh, crowd psychology theory for a very long time. So Laban proposed this theory of, of the maddening crowd where people basically lose their ability to rationalize in, in, a, in a crowd situation, which the perspective that I'm describing, the situational crime prevention perspective with these five dimensions that influence behavior actually helps us to disprove if you will. Mm-hmm. So just because you're participating in a crowd, we do not lose the ability to make decisions, right? We're still rational human beings. That does not mean that we're not influenced by our surroundings or what people are doing around us. You know, so if somebody's climbing a light pole, you know, um, because they think that this is, is funny or they think that they're going to, you know, they're going to incite the crowd and get the crowd. If, if the crowd did nothing, um, to encourage that behavior, that person might just slide down the light pole. And, right. Embarrassed. You know, yeah. Exactly. Right. But because they're climbing up the light pole and people are saying, you know, do it, do it. And, you know, they're instigating this bad behavior, right? Of course, that right. that is influencing their decision making, but it's it has not eradicated their ability to make a decision. So crowds do not lose their mind. They do not go mad. And so by focusing on these five dimensions of choice, and that last one being excuses, you know, can I excuse my behavior, right? Is this something that I can somehow rationalize or justify? If we think about effort, risk, reward, provocations, and excuses, and we manipulate those in a way where people go, that's just a bad decision, right? We're more likely to discourage um, bad 
bad behavior on the on the part of the crowd. And, and, and when I say on the part of the crowd, it's really on the part of individuals mm. in the crowd. So, yes, now I want to start to talk about those controlling the crowds and how to disrupt some of those five dimensions. Um, can we talk about some of the models? I know when we had talked on the phone uh, in preparation for this, you talked a little bit about the Swedish dialogue model um, and some of their work. And so can you describe what that model looks like and how it works within the within their framework of human rights and the legal requirements uh, that they might have? Sure. And the dialogue model of policing uh, is a really useful framework to start to think about how we might want to approach college protests and demonstrations here in the U.S. simply because it's grounded in some of the most recent theoretical advancements in this area, what we know about human decision-making um, and how people behave. And so one of the central tenets of this model is open dialogue, open communication. We have to understand their intent, right? What it is that they're mm -hmm. trying to accomplish, because without that understanding, it's really hard to facilitate their goals um, and, and attempt to prevent harm at the same time. And one of the things that this model stresses is it's not just the dialogue itself. It's not just what we say, but it's also how we say it. So when we think about delivering a message, how is it that we're delivering that message? Are we standing in riot gear with a bullhorn you know, shouting at the crowd uh, particular directives, right, to try to obtain their compliance? Or do we have people who've already established relationships with those who might be leading the protest or the demonstration dressed down in a much softer uniform, talking with them and saying, you know, what is it that you, you would like to do? And how can we protect your First Amendment rights and facilitate your goals while still keeping everyone here safe? And that's definitely one of the things that uh, Chief Vincent had talked about a lot was make establishing those close relationships with the organizers. Um, and so you can have constant communication about as events on the ground change um, and keeping those, keeping those, um, being able to adapt as, um, as crowds or dynamics change. Yeah, those lines of those lines of communication are absolutely critical um, for both parties because unpredictability, if, if we mm -hmm. don't know what to expect, can produce a lot of anxiety, both on the part of police and on the part of protesters. And so those open lines of communication help to reduce that unpredictable nature of what might happen. Um, and, and then it also helps to facilitate um, the dialogue that's necessary uh, in, in order to, to keep these demonstrations peaceful. Another basic principle associated with crowd management is uh, the use of force by police, if police are perceived to be overly aggressive, this tends to incite the crowd, right? So I mean, knowing you, that, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, you're sort of leading me exactly through sort of what I wanted to go next was, you know, getting into those issues. Like, you know, what is that interaction? Um, how should those interactions take place between law enforcement and some of the, those crowds? Sure. So, Whenever law enforcement are perceived to be overly aggressive, so their response is not in line with what's going on in the moment, this is likely to encourage bad behavior and even violence on the part of the crowd. Mm -hmm. Because at that moment, and there's a perspective known as the elaborated social identity model, it's referred to as ESOM. And what ESOM tells us is that if people perceive some sort of injustice um, again, the, the police are just being overly aggressive in the situation. They didn't need to, to behave in that manner in order to gain compliance from the crowd. But now all of a sudden, because the police are being, because the police are being viewed as an aggressor, they've now formed this shared identity to say, this is our common enemy. And we are now going to behave in a way to, if you will, protest that behavior on the part of police. So understanding how and why a crowd might perceive police as being overly aggressive in a particular instance can really help police to think about, okay, what are the tactics that we want to employ here to ensure that people know that we're here to protect them, right, mm -hmm. and to help them and not necessarily um, just simply act as, as aggressors against the crowd? 
let's dive into that issue around um, the interaction models that that we had previously talked about. Um, I think we talked about the reasonable, disarming, the focused, and consistent. So those four dimensions of reasonable, disarming, focused, and consistent came out of the research that I had done over a decade. Um, both related. Do they still hold? Absolutely. And they stem from research on crowd, crowd dynamics, crowd psychology, and also some of the literature on police legitimacy mm. and how the public views police and whether they believe that they're being fair. And, of course, then that in turn can influence their degree of cooperation with police. So, for example, to be reasonable is simply to ask, you know, are we are we asking the crowd to do something simply because we can or because it's absolutely necessary. So an an overly strict focus on law enforcement can be counterproductive. So let's say you have a protest and the people move into the street, right? And they begin to block traffic. You know, do at that moment, you know, these these individuals technically are violating the law, right? They've they're engaged in some sort of infraction. But does it make sense to act aggressively towards these individuals, or do we just shut down the street to protect right both motorists and and the protesters? You know, what is the best course of action? Second, when we when we do have to restrict freedoms, and we often do in order to keep people safe, we have have to ask ourselves: Are we doing this in a manner that's disarming, meaning we're using the least amount of force or intrusiveness as possible? Can we have a simple conversation or do we need to deploy tear gas, right? That's an extreme example of what we should not do, right? Because deploying that tear gas is going to trigger that ESIM effect I was, mm -hmm. I was talking about where people now say, my goodness, what, what are the police doing and why are they doing this? And they form that common enemy. So when we do need to use force, we need to be highly focused, meaning we should never use force indiscriminately against an entire crowd because rarely is an entire crowd engaged in problematic behavior. If you could look at this from the 10,000-foot view, right, and you're looking down on a crowd, even a crowd that is engaged in violence, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that we're dealing with a, a riot. There's going to be a very small proportion of people that are engaged in the most harmful behaviors. Right. And then the more consistent we are, the more predictable we become, right? So people say, we know the police are going to behave in this manner, under these conditions. So again, it reduces that unpredictability, it reduces anxiety, and it inc increases cooperation if people know what to expect from the police. So the, the yeah. more we can broadcast what it is that we, um, you know, what it is that we plan to do in the event that something happens, the less likely the crowd's going to react in a way that suggests they're surprised or, you know, they didn't anticipate that this would, would happen. Right. There's two different things I was thinking about as you said that. For the planned protests, you can talk about those specifics, like if this happens, we're going to do this with a community or with, with an organizer of that event. In the events that are more quote-unquote spontaneous um, or there's no leader, um, but if the police department was consistent in the years prior to you know, Cinco de Mayo in Cincinnati, for example, then people would have a sense of what to expect from law enforcement already. Yes, and so there's different absolutely. ways to, I think, you know, um, engage in those, um, in, in that signaling. Absolutely. What you describe is, I know we talked about traditions or history on the part of protests um, or events, but the same could be said for policing tactics, right? So what, what do people expect the police to do um, in, in any given situation is based on their prior experiences with police. Mm -hmm. So they the police themselves develop a reputation or traditions, if you will, um, that then influence the behavior or the perspective of the crowd. Um, and then sort of our last question, what's sort of the status of research on crowd dynamics and crowd control? What are some of the major gaps in, in that research? There is so much work to be done. It is really an under-researched area and part of the reason for that is it's just very difficult to conduct. Mm. You know, it's it's not like other types of crimes where you can go into a police department and download a data set on auto theft. Right. It's so much more complicated than that because in the end, these aren't always 
things that we, of course, we want to prevent harm, but we don't necessarily want to prevent demonstrations mm -hmm. or protests, right? In, in many instances, the police want to facilitate those behaviors because this, this is what it means to be American, right? This is what it, it means to have our First Amendment rights and freedom of speech. Absolutely. So it's, it's different in that sense. So as a researcher, you know, it's, it's not the type of thing where we have data on a bunch of really terrible things that have happened over and over and over again, right? We, we basically have these events where some things have kind of gone right, maybe some things have kind of gone wrong, and it's very difficult to study and then extract very specific findings. And you can't really do like an RCT on, you know, riots. Um, you know, no. you, you can't, you can't, you can't to... <laughs> encourage riots to see how you can manipulate no. them. No. And, you know, it's so funny. You know, I do this thought experiment all the time. What would that look like <laughs> to do a randomized control trial with, you know, with protests? It's absolutely impossible. And so we're never going to meet the rigorous methodological research standards um, that we might find in the hard sciences when we're dealing with something like crowds because they're so complex and just because of the very nature um, of what crowds do and what we have to do in order to keep uh, individuals within crowds safe. Well, I think that is a great place to stop. So we will end the podcast there. Dr. Harold, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Appreciate the invitation. Again, I want to thank my guests, Chief Vincent and Dr. Harold, and I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Also, thank you to the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office for their support on this episode. Please see the show notes to learn more about the COPS Office and follow their work. We'll also link to IACP resources on crowd management and control. Feel free to email us with any comments or suggestions at discoverpolicing at theiacp.org. For this episode, I had research and production help from Elon Lee. Thank you to the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office for their support on this episode. Please see the show notes to learn more about the COPS Office and follow their work. This project was supported in whole or in part by Cooperative Agreement Number 2017-CK-WXK-004, awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.